2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
3: Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. In the last few weeks, with the anti-racism protests going on all over the world, have made me reconsider the narrative I have with my children around racism, prejudice and inequality. It's made me realise that even though the idea of any kind of racism is abhorrent, this is not a problem that is resolved. We might not see the images we see in the US, in the UK, but that does not mean that prejudice does not exist in our society. In order to answer both the question of in what form racism currently exists and what we as parents can do about it, Today I'm joined by two guests, Emma Gledhill, educational speaker, trainer and coach, whose experience as a school leader and understanding of child development make her uniquely positioned to talk about how racism can be tackled both in school and at home. But first I talk to Candice Braithwaite, an activist, the co-founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, an online initiative to rectify the fact that all too often motherhood is depicted as largely white. She's just published her first book, An Account of What It's Like to Be a Black British Mother today well firstly I loved your book I think it's such an important piece of writing but not only that it's really beautifully written you are such a good writer I know that you work for a publishing house Is, is, is writing something that you always were into yeah always I used to work in the marketing department
0: at penguin random house and my daughter was about two And I always wanted to write a book, but I knew it wasn't the right time. I had no idea what I wanted to write about, what I wanted to say. And I did notice that this thing called blogging seemed to be really growing. And I was like, I'm going to go off and try and build a platform of my own. It took a while, but we got there in the end. And this book is after six proposals that were refused so like I really tried and funny enough this proposal was written in 45 minutes I sent it with fury and anger to my management team and I cc'd in my husband and I was like I never want to speak about this again just leave me alone and then
3: we had a deal in two weeks <laughs> It's really quite an interesting journey. <laughs> and that's what shines through is the passion with which you write. It is so readable. I read it literally. My daughter was like, Mummy, how can you have already finished that book? I was like, <laughs> I couldn't put it down. It's there's it gave me so much pause for thought, but it also was so readable. I mean, I, I really enjoy like reading about the different experiences of mums, but it was a real fresh air and a breath of fresh air. And I felt that I learned so much from it. And I feel having read it, I feel like I was so naive. You know, I think Mm. that I've obviously grown up very privileged. I grew up with the absolute belief that any kind of racism is abhorrent. But, Mm. and I thought it was enough just not to be a racist parent. But what I Mm. realized is that, we're not doing the right thing unless we're acknowledging that racism and prejudice and discrimination exists. And that was partly just because I read with shock your experiences. And I feel it's really important to talk to our children about life, about real life, even though it's not a pretty story. I just feel that it's really important that we have this conversation with our kids.
0: Yeah and I am um, I'm I'm not going to lie I'm a bit overwhelmed because even the idea of Publishing a book during a global pandemic was a little bit scary. So I was like, you know what, let's not push the date back. Let's just see what happened. And it's just through cosmic alignment that the book was published right at this time, right when the conversation surrounding Black Lives Matter and equality and racial injustice is at an all time high. And all of a sudden, I'm watching my baby being carried along with books uh, with my peers, people that I admire, huge books where I'm no longer talking to white people about race and me and white supremacy. And I'm like, my baby, my baby, she's not even gone to nursery. And you guys are like, <laughs> making her graduate? No, wait, slow down. So I'm, I'm, I'm really conflicted. Of course, you want your work to be read. Of course, you want to do well. But I have to admit that the amplification is because many of us watched a black man be murdered on screen and i i I need to leave room for the grief and mourning of that moment, but also leave room for the fact that I believe in my work enough to know that it would have had a moment it's just that the moment's been really sped up because of the way we are in especially in the u k right now and i, I don't know I, I i the joy I want to have isn't a hundred percent just because I know the work has been so gobbled up because people now have an urgency to learn and read and process. And, like you said, understand and admit that it's not enough to be like, well, I'm not a racist. It's now the understanding of anti racism, of actively teaching our children. It's not all a bed of roses for everyone. And how are you going to use your privilege to make sure someone else's life is easier? I'm really. I'm struggling with that. I have to be honest.
3: Mm. What, you know, I'd love for people that haven't read the book, for you just to talk a little bit about your experience as a black mother. Because I think, you know, there were so many incidences, not on the scale of what's happening in the US, but things that matter. And that's what really struck me with the book. You know, what happened in the US is atrocious, but it didn't happen in the UK. So a lot of people are like, What's the big deal? We're, we're not like the US. But mm-hmm. what your book illustrated for me is that there are lots of little things that happen that mm. hack away, uh, that are just simply not okay. And that's what mm. we need to be talking to our kids about. We need to be acknowledging that they exist, but also mm. telling our children that these little things exist so that we can start to rectify them.
0: Mm. Yeah, having, especially with my first daughter, Esme, I I almost died after having her i i contracted sepsis i had an emergency c-section and i told various midwives after having her look i'm not feeling so well i don't i don't feel great and i was constantly chastised oh stay off of the internet you know it's all in your head calm down luckily for me we fell asleep one night and she was on my chest and she must have wriggled in her sleep and her the weight of her, her baby body was able to make the infected sac, which was beneath my wound, explode. And, oh, I, I smelt like just... I smelt like death. And then I was taken back to hospital, and they were like, you're slipping into septic shock. And this was all already traumatic for me because my dad had died of sepsis, which had exacerbated because of flu. He died from the common flu. And so... I've had to leave my newborn at home, I'm rushed back to surgery, I'm then in intensive care for five weeks, I cannot physically see my baby, I I can't even imagine breastfeeding and I come out of that situation, of course I have postnatal depression but I'm also like in my mind I believe that this is a one-of-one situation. So it's not until the back end of 2018, there's a report called the Embrace Report, which outlined that black women in the UK are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And then an online conversation grew. And I started speaking to my black friends who are mothers and general black women on the Internet. And I was like, oh, I'm not one of one. I am one of so many. I am actually lucky to be alive to tell the story so there's that and then I have this child and I'm trying my best and I send her to school and one day I get a call and the teacher's like you know I'm sorry to tell you this but someone just didn't want to play with Esme today because she's black and you know we've given her like a five minute timeout, but you know kids will be kids mind blown and I'm like Uh, No, and the school really didn't deal with it well. And, I, you know, I don't want to take them to task for it because you don't, you just don't know what you don't know. And we would moved to a very white village just on the outskirts of Milton Keynes. Esme was like one or two black kids in the school. It's always been a very white school. They've never even had to consider a racial policy in their school layout because they've never had a minority so why would you but it's it like you said because it's not racism isn't as 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 brute force as it is in the US i think we're so tricked in the UK to be like oh that's a that's a they issue we are good here no the microaggressions that chip away at the black british experience are a lot and i think that really comes across in the book
3: there was one story you talked about was when you went to buy a secondhand <laughs> bugaboo pushchair and you, you, you know, having paid for it, you knocked on the door and the, the lady thought that you were, I think she thought you were a charity worker collecting money yeah. for charity and there was very much a sort of, you know, she kept the door on the latch and do you think, I mean, what's interesting about that, this is not killing a black guy. And, and I think mm. what, what I realise is that there are so many different shades of prejudice. Yeah. And mm. it would be interesting, I wonder whether the woman who was so offensive towards you, behaved so offensively, would even acknowledge the fact that what she did was racism or mm. whether she considers herself not racist, but she's just massively prejudiced in mm. her outlook. What, what, what do you think? Yeah. And this is the thing. And I, I I know a lot of my black
0: friends get really annoyed when I say this, but there, there, of course there are levels to racism. I didn't die that day. No one called me the N word, but it's just these subtle things that I think sometimes even my white friends don't understand until I point it out to them. And they're like, they're then horrified. They're like, oh, I I, I didn't realise that I only clutch my purse when a black guy walks past. I, did, I didn't even notice I was doing that. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's unconscious bias. You're not even thinking about it. You are programmed, be that through media or what you read or see. And But you still do have to fix it. You do. But that doesn't mean that I, I'm holding them to account the same way I'm holding the cop to account that put his knee on George's neck it's no it's not that but those things do still need to be refined they need to be edited because those are the small things that our children pick up on I can talk till I'm blue in the face to my children my kids do what they see don't touch that don't do that my my partner won't stop smoking my son the other day went into the, into the back garden and just started picking up the ashtray pretending to smoke it's not what you say they just mimic every small thing you do and it's the same with microaggressions and that subtle racism if it's not nipped in the bud unfortunately we will pass it down to the next generation and then we do plant the seeds of a george floyd situation because you don't get to determine when those feelings or you know the microaggressions start to get out of hand. You don't get to do that. And
3: actually, if you look, sort of genetically, children are even more hardwired to pick up on fear, on aggression, because that's kind of mm -hmm. what keeps them safe. You know, we're Mm -hmm. sort of programmed to live in a much more dangerous world than we do. So when it comes to, I mean, I definitely inherited... fear of spiders from my mother and I do think children (laughs) are uniquely positioned to be like when they do sense that 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 fear or that Mm. antipathy they will pick that up much more than the positivity completely so because why would a four-year-old refuse to play with a
0: another four-year-old because she's black, you know, that starts in the home. As angry as I was, I can't take that anger out on what is another innocent child who is just picking up what she hears or sees at home. But it's important that that doesn't happen. I mean, my child was four, four. It's That's still really hard to think about.
3: And then, you know, in terms of what the school did, didn't, I mean, what what made me really opened my eyes when I was reading your book and actually laugh was when the headmistress was like no we are doing stuff to make the school multicultural we've got some African drummers coming in this week (laughs) (laughs) what would you have liked to see (laughs) what would you have liked to see in terms of the school's reaction to this
1: I would uh,
0: I would have liked them to help facilitate a conversation between us and the parent of the child. Who ostracised Esme for sure? Did you ever find out, out who I that w- child was? Yeah, Esme. You know, kids are kids. Esme was like, "Mummy, it's her." <laughs> like, you know, but I'm, I, I'm, I. I understand why the school felt like they couldn't facilitate that. But what they should have got to work on immediately was adjusting their policy. And they just didn't have that energy. It was all really flippant. Interestingly enough, I went to the post office the other day and I ran into another mum whose children are still at the school. She's white and her husband is black. So her children are mixed race. And she was like, I've literally just had the same situation this year. Like it's it's not getting any better. Thank God you pulled Esme out. And I'm like, yes, thank God. And this is the point. It shouldn't be now that every minority child who dares goes to that school just sees that as part and parcel. And you know, the white lady was really honest. She was like, I don't know what to do. I'm a white woman who just happened to fall in love with a black man. And now my children are the targets of of racist ideas from people that look exactly like me. And I'm a bit spun out about it and I did you know we entertained the conversation for a while and I just thought yeah it's not going to get any better unfortunately and it's a shame because that's the only school in that village why should your children then have to drive miles to be educated in an environment that cares for them in that manner, it's, it's a little
3: bit insane. I yeah. mean, you say it won't get any better, I do think your book is really powerful, and I also know it's doing incredibly well, and mm. that you have a really strong and loud voice talking about this. And surely mm. all it takes is a teacher, a parent, to read about your account. And it would be quite difficult not to. You'd have to be pretty mm. blinkered in... This week, last week, not Mm. to be talking, not to be thinking about this. I mean, it's interesting. I've had so many conversations about race with my kids this week, just because, you know, we have the radio on in the morning. It's dominated the news. Mm. I've obviously been reading your book. So it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And it's so interesting to see how powerful just simple conversation can be and it doesn't need to be I'm going to traumatize my children and tell them things that are unsuitable for their age I mean Mm. it's not a pretty subject but at the same time I think actually having those difficult conversations in a way can bring you closer to your children because they they're so grateful to be talked Mm. to as if they're a grown-up yes completely and
0: you know I do want to reiterate like black Parents, black mothers, we don't really get the grace of saying, right, we're, we're not going to discuss that right now because it's quite difficult. We do not get that space. From the time your children can start to speak, my son's two, and I'm already guessing that by the time he's like five, we will softly start to have a discussion about his public behaviour because I understand how black boys specifically in this country are viewed. So at about five, I'm going to say to him, you know, I know you're just full of energy and you want to jump all over the place, but that's not how it's going to be viewed at school. And so I, my hope is, you know, if I have to do that, I can't cop out of that, then I need everyone to just do their bit because your bit is never gonna match my bit. So I need you to be on the other end telling your kids, like, you know, stand up for your your black minority friends. If you see something going wrong, step in there. I need that to happen. And I think yeah, I was really worried about writing this book because I was like, oh, I just don't feel smart enough. I don't feel like it's poetic. I feel like I could have done so much better. But the resounding feedback has been, no, it's readable and drinkable. And I understand it so plainly that I'm, I'm making thick and fast decisions about where I stand in all of this and what I can do to make this situation better. And so I've had to completely like shove my ego off a short bridge and be like, actually sweetheart, this was not the time to pretend to be Shakespeare it the book is exactly what it needed to be and i i think that's why it's doing so well because the language doesn't exclude anyone or you're not having to read it and then run for a dictionary it's very clear i've tried my best to not make it an autobiography but use my situations to illustrate what many black women are going through. I've said this before. I feel like it could have had any black British woman's name as the author and we all would have shared a collective experience along the way. And I just feel like if, if, that, if, that, if it is going to be used as an educational tool, I'm, I'm proud. I'm fine. I didn't expect it, but I'm happy with it.
3: Candice, thank you. You have every reason to be proud. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that
3: With what I've learnt from Candice, I realise that so much of the work we have to do in truly eradicating racism lies in education, around the narrative of how we talk to our children about the issues that are finally being discussed, thanks to the voices of Candice and other activists. Emma Gledhill joins me now. Welcome, Emma. I think this this week has called into question my feelings about kind of race. And what I've realized is that it's not enough just not to be racist. It's kind of, it's more about not tolerating racism. And I think that as a white woman, I have grown up presuming that no one's racist, but actually they are. And there are lots of little acts of sort of microaggression that are very much directed towards, you know, People of different races, people of different nationalities. I've got to say, I don't think it's just racism. I think it's also, you know, we've got xenophobia, we've got anti-Semitism in this country. And I think reflecting, on what I want to teach my children is that it's not okay to accept these things. It's not okay to be a silent witness. You kind of have to call people out. In your experience as a teacher, as a school leader, is that a narrative around racism and shaping children's views towards racism? Is that something that is had in in schools or is that something that really does need cultivating?
1: I mean, I can speak to my experiences, particularly working with primary schools and as a parent of a primary school child, you know, our daughter goes to school in central London and it really is like the United Nations and they work exceedingly hard on diversity and inclusion of all kinds, not only in terms of racial diversity, but also in terms of sort of different diverse needs and neurological differences. Uh, and I think many schools are doing a superb job of bringing children into a world where we're more observant of similarities than we are of differences. And there are various structures that schools can use to do this. For example, becoming a UNICEF rights respecting school. And then there are different levels, bronze, silver, gold, where the school can actually have a framework to work within to embed diversity and inclusivity in their approach. So I I would say right from the get-go, in terms of transition into group life, we should be schools should be and must be having conversations about diversity and these things are are actually up for scrutiny in inspections in school inspections and certainly as a governor we are required to scrutinize policy and practice and and sort of triangulate where do we see, you know here's our equality policy where do we see this actually happening in action and can we talk to people about their perceptions of this inaction and, you know, actively seeking pupil voice about their sense of belonging in, in the school, as well as parent voice as well. So there are lots and lots of layers. And if I think about sort of di- that dialogue in families, too, there are all sorts of ways in which we can have that dialogue from a very, very early age, looking at books, looking at what's, what what we see on TV Kids are picking up all sorts of things from the world around them. You know, the language that they use and we use is very powerful. What I have noticed with my daughter growing up in you a know, very sort of multiracial environment is that there's a sort of, in a, in her younger years certainly, a very innocent colour blindness. And she's very careful about how she talks about people in terms of their race and I'm, I'm really rather glad to say that she will tend to say the boy in the black coat rather than the boy with the black skin. You know, she mm. will identify people and describe them by the way, by, by the way they, are, they are dressed. And she's very aware of quite a lot of baggage around, you know, the older she's got, she's been a little bit tentative around describing someone by the colour of their skin.
3: And presumably she's picked that up from you because that's essentially what children do is they mirror... Their, their parents' behaviour, don't they?
1: Yeah, part, partly through me, partly through other strong influences in her life from school, for sure. And, and you know, her, her, her friendship groups, listening to how people de- describe themselves as well. <clears throat> you know, we're lucky that it's not just the school population that's diverse, but also the teaching staff is very diverse as well. So having really strong role models in her community life, you know, we're lucky that you know, our our nanny, who is very much a part of our family, comes from a mixed race heritage. There there is that exposure to those differences, but more strongly than that, there's exposure to the similarities that that bind us together, our kindness, our common humanity, our capacity for joy, our capacity to be hurt and feel excluded. And and those are all a great conversation to be had. But you know, there's always there is always a little awkwardness around the some of the language we use. What what is correct? You know, and I can remember sort of being at the bus stop or, you know, at the traffic lights, and, you know, my daughter saying, you know, red man, green man, and and then you know someone's walking past in the street, black man, uh, and so oh, oh, you know, uh, um, yeah,
3: uh, but then all- but then I guess. And You know, there are also teachable moments, I yeah. guess, in that. You know, I remember it was actually last summer. We were, as a family, a, a big group of us having dinner with someone from an older generation. And he used language that I felt was totally inexcusable. When it, And it was a racist language. And it was the kind of environment. We were guests. And I was a bit uncomfortable about pulling this guy up. But in the end, I said, I didn't say directly to him, but I said to my kids, Loudly, so that everyone could hear. Just so you know, guys, that language is totally unacceptable. I don't want you ever to use the word you just heard. And... I remember at the time feeling a bit awkward because yeah. I'm a polite person and I, I guess I'm too much of a people pleaser that this wasn't the time and place. But in retrospect, I'm really glad I did that because not only was it a really strong signal to my kids that you do not use the language he just used, but also to him in an indirect way, instead of sort of saying, I, how dare you, which would have you know, been quite awkward, I very much rammed that point home and I think made him realise that it is inexcusable. It was inexcusable what he did.
1: Mm. I think what we want to aim for is for our children to be upstanders. And it actually comes from us. You know, they need to see that we're prepared to call it out when we see it. And that's so important. If they don't see that, then, then they get a, a very powerful unconscious message that actually it's not the done thing. To, to talk to this. And then there's this very sort of polarised view where there's sort of nothing in between inaction and and protest. You know, protest on the streets mm. and putting down statues. It is very much, you know, about teaching our children to be kind, to go for like being likeable rather than being popular, um, you know, to know their values, to know the values about fairness feeling that being able to feel that you belong, that you're not being pushed away, that you are welcome, you know, likable people. And also,
3: I suppose, encouraging them to have a conversation. Mm. You know, we don't, Always know what the right thing to do is. And I've very much felt that over the past three weeks, I've thought a lot about race and how racist our society is. And, you know, initially I had massive feelings of guilt because I'm a privileged white girl. But that guilt isn't going to help anyone. It's more about those proactive feelings. And I've had these conversations with my kids like, what can we do about this? We're not racist, but that's not enough. We need to try and change the world and try and change people's attitudes and try and slowly change this acceptant of 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 discrimination you know because there's a big difference between killing you know policemen killing a black guy simply on account of his color to the everyday racist kind of knocks that are felt and and not just by you know black people but also by you know I've seen it I have seen it this week you know a xenophobia towards an eastern European guy who was doing his job amazingly to you know people with disabilities to you know there is so much discrimination in our society and I guess the the most powerful thing that we can do is not to tolerate it and to call people up on it.
1: Yeah I I agree but I I suppose and and what I'm taking really strongly from what you're saying and and want to sort of endorse is that idea that this is a starting point this is a jump off point for all of us and it's about seeking to understand and understand better you know from our position uh, you know I I, there's a part of me that feels rather uncomfortable being brought into this dialogue as as, as as a white woman what 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 rights, you know? I I have basked in a privilege that actually I have been blind to, and and you know what has been very powerful about the conversations I've been having around this is that I'm starting to, uh, starting to learn more and be more open to the idea that the pathway that other people have had to the point they've arrived at can have been a complete different experience to mine. You know, the other week I I serve as a governor at my daughter's school, and a fellow governor, he wrote to the school and copied in other governors to, to sort of start a discussion, saying, I just don't know how to talk to my children about about the George Floyd killing and about the protests. Anything that the school can do would be really helpful. And he said that it, it had reawakened in him such powerful feelings of his own experiences of racism and this kind of drew me up quite profoundly really because i've served next to this man for many years and he is a very very highly educated highly cultivated you know model of a professional upstanding engaged fellow parent incredibly knowledgeable and nuanced in the way he works with other people and i suppose i kind of imagined that he was just like me Just like me, you know, I I saw lots of similarities, but he, you know, he happens to be of an African heritage. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't even have a nuanced idea of what that is. And, And it just sort of opened up to me this idea that actually a lot of the time we don't know what is in other people's backpack, what they're carrying around and that greater awareness that even someone who may have come from an affluent middle class educated background will still have been subject to obstacles that we have actually had no idea just because they've come out the other end you know just because Michelle Obama you know reached the pinnacle she did doesn't mean there wasn't a story on the way and uh, and an entirely different experience and it's seeking to understand that and actually acknowledge that we need to be more more curious to understand better because sometimes we don't it, the experiences that people are having are not necessarily just egregious experiences of racist language and confrontational or, or obstructive behavior it's often really quite subtle so there are other ways and i think like you talking about my reactions as things have unfolded with with our daughter has been a really lovely thing to do listening to various podcasts reading you know she reads the week junior which does an excellent job of sort of unpacking current affairs in a way that balances you know calm conveying of facts but also hope agency optimism what you can do how you can understand the context a bit better you know those sort of resources are very very helpful i'm very aware that you know, like you, I need to make sure that there are boundaries, that there's an element of shielding, you know, that uh, while we're acknowledging that some people behave in a way that is distressing, dangerous, uh, you know, like the policeman involved, they are, that, that there is a sense of proportion, there's a sense of history, there's a trend to it, there's the context that we can calmly talk about but also that police forces and societies are doing more and more and we need to do still more to ensure that 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 there is there is equality in their approach that there are better representation within the police that actually the majority of police on our streets are caring in their approach and are are there to make all of us feel safe but that there is work that has, had, has been done already in the police and more to be done and a lot of work in our society that needs, needs to be done, including with us and starting with us and what can we do? We can seek to understand better for, for sure and um, talking about our reactions and our feelings and our, our search for doing better is, is so important that you know, we want to be part of affecting change. Some of the ways in which we're seeing change that dialogue come about are, are are extreme, but some of the some of the work that's being done is really important. And what can we do? What are the healthy and and important ways in which we can make sure this dialogue is serious and it's sustained, and that it's not just the flavour of the month during this sort of strange summer of lockdown a diversion from coronavirus that will be in our minds for a moment and then gone
3: yeah I mean I feel as I've I've asked my question myself a question a lot these last few weeks like what can I do what can I do that will make a difference and I feel that as a mother and someone who has a platform that essentially at its root is all about how you communicate with your children having that conversation with the children you know and ensuring that the next generation of policymakers, of disruptors, of people who shape the world will shape our world in a more fair way. But from a practical point of view, I mean, we've talked obviously before, Emma, about how to have difficult conversations with children, and I think this definitely falls into that category. From a practical point of view, how do you start having that conversation with, the ch- with children? Do you have any kind of practical pointers that would make it a bit easier for people that are maybe a little bit more worried about having this conversation? Mm.
1: I mean, I think it's really important that we say something and just because we're afraid about getting it right shouldn't stop us, because we should be our child's first port of call for finding meaning and interpreting the world in which they see from a very early age, so being afraid of the topic shouldn't make us avoidant. being careful you know shouldn't make us be avoidant of it, so you know it, it is very important if we want our children to be part of this change, then we need to help shape that. And make sure that they are getting, they they are getting why it matters to us and our values in abundance. Really, um, I think in practical terms we need to be thoughtful about the language we use. We talked about that already, and and also talking about why we need to be careful about the language we use. You know, I, I think language has a huge power, and we need to be beyond sort of acceptance and tolerance we need to be talking in a much more affirmative way you know acceptance sounds like a sort of very low baseline of concession and tolerance you know it's it's more than that it's about rights it's about respect it's about belonging it's about inclusion it's about humanity you know how powerful it is when we feel that we belong that everyone has the right to that and i think we need to be think practically about where children are at not to four you know, they're not able to put scary information into context. So, you know, talking, you know, they may have picked up in conversations from the news that there, you know, some, some quite scary and distressing elements of the, you know, the, these recent events. And so we need to be careful, answer their questions in as much detail as is needed to help them feel safe, but not to, you know, to be aware of of, of their limitations that they can't put that scary information into context. So we need to make sure they feel are calm and that we're able to end with reassurance of their safety, that adults are working on this and you know we've all got to work hard to make it better, but reassure them that the world by and large is a safe place and hopefully will become an even safer place as a result of of, of some of what they may be picking up. But we, we need to sort of scale back a little bit with that. But I do think we need to be proactive about thinking about diversity and similarity and embracing that. From the age of five, children have more positive perceptions. They have a sort of group identity and they, have, they definitely have more positive perceptions of people who they think are the same as them, even if those similarities are relatively meaningless, like they're both wearing the same top. So, there is a sense of you know that there there is a sense of separation awareness of separation that comes in, and at that early age being able to have dialogue about similarities and differences and there you know there are great books that can be a sort of launch pad for that you know there's a Julia Donaldson book called i think it's called the Smeds and the is it the Smeds and the Smoos, where there are alien a planet of aliens and there's a red alien who falls in love with a blue alien, much to the disapproval because the two don't mix, the reds and the blues don't mix. And they end up ha- you know, they fall in love, they end up having a beautiful purple baby. Uh, and you know, there there's a, a really lovely, you know, with Julia Donaldson's usual flair for rhyme and wordplay it's a it's a really beautiful sort of launch pad for talking about attitudes to each other why people like each other how people can judge each other from a distance uh, and that sort of idea of what lies beneath what lies beneath the the common things the idea that we you know we don't know what's in other people's hearts and other people's experiences and you know what what a more wonderful world it is when we reach out to each other with hope and curiosity and the things that we can learn about each other and the beautiful things that can grow from those differences so so there are ways I think in which we can approach what can feel like a very heavy topic that starts to make the world seem like quite a scary place we can do that in quite a developmentally sensitive way And we can also be asking those questions of the school that our children, you know, at the beginning of school, we have lots of meetings with the school and we can ask, how does the school approach talking about race and diversity? How will they integrate all the different people of different backgrounds so that we can be a little bit more informed and, you know, work in in harmony with that approach? I know, certainly as a governor and in the work that I do, supporting safeguarding leads, talking about sort of current trends and what's happening right now as part of my work as a coach in a group setting you know schools are having a lot of dialogue right now about what they're going to do going forward so many schools will be opening up conversations trying to survey people parents in particular and if you have time in these busy plate spinning locked down days be part of that dialogue you know ask questions of the school say what it is that you want you you want to 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 be able to reinforce what values you're concerned about, what you want to understand, and I think schools, you know, s- schools have got their eye on this, and are particularly thinking not, yeah, now's
3: the time. Yeah, now's the time yeah. to
1: bring this up. <laughs> not not just about a knee jerk yeah. reaction, but they're thinking, you know, good schools will be thinking about, you know, long term sustainable approach to enriching and improving what they do in terms of race and diversity issues. And inclusion.
3: One of the things, yeah, I mean, one of the things you've mentioned to me before in this context is in talking to children is the fact that important conversations never just happen once. They're a continuous conversation. Mm. And I suppose that gives you many chances to get it right. I think there's a lot of pressure, especially if you're a privileged white family, of getting it wrong. Like, Mm. am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to use the wrong context? Am I going to use the wrong vocabulary? But actually, parenting is never about getting it right all the time that's totally impossible it's about getting it right most of the time doing the best you can acknowledging when you make a mistake and 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 I suppose having the conversation again and again and again and constantly bringing it back means that you can adapt as your child's understanding about this topic grows also as they mature with age but it also gives you an opportunity a bigger opportunity to get it right most of the time.
1: and one thing that's quite interesting right now is digitally because the majority of our children are, uh, are learning from home parents are getting an insight into the classroom a lot more and can be attending for instance virtual assemblies and so we can see what language is being used by the school and whereas you know and one thing i do think is important is for parents to realize how much sort of difficulty it, it can feel from school leaders point of view wanting to do an assembly that addresses this feeling very very aware of parent scrutiny and wanting to get it righter and and, and therefore it can be very helpful to have constructive dialogue between parents and the school about the types of language being used you know if the way the, if the language the school is using in those assemblies feels clunky and difficult you know it's something we we do need to work constructively on together and it's very easy to you know to leap on things as being wrong and then actually furthering a dynamic of of othering and wrongness it's really about the adults around the children the, the next generation we we're we're, grow, we're growing to to come together in in very sort of co-supportive ways at, at this time particularly you know We've got the coronavirus situation, which is giving us a sort of wallpaper of threat and uncertainty. And therefore, we're all a lot more emotionally labile and volatile as a result of it, because our our whole body and brain systems are wired to that sort of threat. And therefore, when topics like this come up, we can, be, again, be very emotionally hijacked. And what our kids need to see is our calm our ability to you know be thoughtful and reflective around distressing stuff because that's where that's where the progress is made yes there's a place for anger and yes we should be we should be sad angry and we should be feeling uncomfortable we definitely should but we should also be showing that capacity to to do something with those feelings to use those feelings as a spur for thought and action and change and compassion and you know responsibility it is only a collective that's going to solve this situation so so again, I would say you know on the home front, if parents see other people getting it wrong being being thoughtful about how how to shape the conversation in order to get it to evolve to be even righter. Emma
3: this is brilliant thank you so much I have really enjoyed chatting to you about this this is a perfect kind of yeah direction I think for parents who might be feeling quite confused and anxious and that is probably manifested in their children so thank you so much that's great thanks Thank you for downloading another episode of The Parenthood with two brilliant guests. I wholeheartedly recommend that you read Candice Braithwaite's book. It's called I Am Not Your Baby Mother and it's out now. You can also find out more about Emma Gledhill's work, speaking to parents about a range of issues that parents sometimes find hard to tackle at emmagledhill.com. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please do look through our archive of well over 100 episodes Upfront and informative conversations like these, which are all available wherever you've downloaded this podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the podcast. It really helps new listeners find us. But in the meantime, from both my guests today, Candice and Emma, thank you for listening and goodbye.